1: Hello and welcome to a special series of pathology podcasts celebrating National Pathology Week 2010 held by the Royal College of Pathologists. I'm Ben Valsler from The thenakedscientists.com and in these podcasts I'll bring you some of the highlights from this year's Pathology Week. This year's events focused on pathology, the building blocks of life. This series of three podcasts will take you behind the scenes and into the pathology labs at Great Ormond Street Hospital. We'll explore the role of pathologists in pregnancy and paediatrics and we'll have a glimpse of the world of veterinary pathology and the role that veterinary pathologists play in understanding animal developmental disorders. To highlight the role of pathologists in the care of pregnant women and young babies, Tim Reggett, Vice President of the Royal College of Pathologists, hosted an event in the Medical School at Addenbrookes Hospital. Along with paediatric pathologists, obstetricians and clinical biochemists, we explored several different aspects of pregnancy and birth. Liz Hook is a consultant paediatric pathologist at Addenbrookes Hospital.
0: The aim of pregnancy (coughs) is to end up with a healthy baby and a healthy mother. And how does this happen? Well, it happens with a very great input from pathology and a small input from obstetricians. And we start right at the beginning. So when you think you're pregnant and you go and do your pregnancy test, this is a biochemical test based on detecting human chorionic gonadotropin in the urine. And usually for most pregnancies, you just get a yes or no, and that's fine. But occasionally the biochemistry lab will go and measure a specific value if they're worried. For example, if they think the pregnancy is in the wrong place, then the beta-HCG level will not rise properly. So the overview of what we're going to talk about is what happens at the very beginning, around eight weeks, usually when people know or just about know they're pregnant. And then what happens is you go through pregnancy following right through to the end because the care that the pathologists provide carry on once the baby is born. So to start with the haematologists, well haematology screening is quite important during pregnancy both for the baby and for the mother. So at the beginning of pregnancy at eight weeks when you see the midwife for the first time your haemoglobin level is checked and it's checked again during pregnancy because it's quite common for pregnant women to end up anemic and end up on dreadful iron supplement. But the screening is slightly more complicated than that we do what's called haemoglobinopathy screening. And there are some hereditary disorders that are more common in different populations, for example, the sickle cell. So you have nice, normal red blood cells that form a sort of biconcave disc that looks a bit like a Werther's original. Mm. And then you have abnormal red blood cells, which, when the oxygen level in the blood falls, form a slightly sickled shape. And the problem is that those red blood cells then clog um, all the different blood vessels and the reason you would want to pick this up is that if you know about it you can treat the baby you can help the baby and there are a few other examples so everyone's blood is checked that they're not a carrier for this type of disorder the blood group is also checked and also the mother's screened for any antibodies that might damage the baby's red blood cells while the baby's still in utero and this is because of a disorder which is now thankfully very very rare in this country called hemolytic disease of the newborn and this happens when the mother is what we call rhesus negative, so she lacks a certain molecule on her red blood cells, but the father is rhesus positive, and the baby inherits the father's blood type. If some of the baby's blood crosses the placenta into the mother, this might happen if you have a trauma, if you get hit in the tummy at all during pregnancy, then the mother can make antibodies, and those antibodies can cross the placenta, and... Usually it happens in the next pregnancy. What they do is they damage the fetal red blood cells so the baby ends up anemic and in the worst-case scenario, unfortunately, passes away. This can be prevented and all women screen to check whether they're Rhesus D negative or positive and if they're negative, they get offered regular injections if they have any trauma during pregnancy or routinely at delivery, an injection of some antibodies which get rid of any fetal cells and prevent the mother from making antibodies. What do the biochemists do? Well, as well as helping design the tests to diagnose pregnancy in the first place, the biochemists are also very involved in screening for disorders like Down syndrome. So we measure various proteins in the pregnant mother's blood, something called PAPA, and then three more called alpha-fetoprotein, estriol and beta-HCG. And using the level of these you can produce a risk of the baby having Down syndrome. And the virologists and microbiologists are also involved at this very early stage. So in this country, all pregnant women are offered screening for hepatitis B, HIV and uh, rubella. The testing for rubella is to check that the women are immune, so hopefully everyone had their MMR jab. And that means that you're not at risk of contracting rubella, which can damage the baby, causing all sorts of developmental abnormalities The hepatitis B and HIV are tested because if you know that a mother who is expecting is positive, you can protect the baby from contracting the disorder. So if you give a woman who's HIV positive some retroviral drugs during pregnancy and you manage her delivery, you can dramatically reduce the risk of HIV being transmitted from mother to baby, and the same is true of hepatitis B. The microbiologists do certain tests but the critical one is syphilis. Again syphilis can cross the centre and infect the baby and cause a number of developmental abnormalities but again if you know and you spot the syphilis you can treat it and prevent the baby from being infected.
1: More from Liz Hook later on. One of the clinical aspects that people always associate with pregnancy is the ultrasound scan. Quiver Lynch explained what these scans are looking for.
2: So we look at the four chambers of the heart and um, we also look at the tubes coming out of the heart. Move down below the heart, and this is actually the stomach. We also look at the spine, see the baby's chin, we see the baby's hands, fingers, and we look at the baby's feet. We also look to see what the placenta is, because some women's placenta lies here at the bottom and can and obstructs the way out for the baby. And if that's the case, the woman needs to be delivered by Cesarean section. So we look at the placenta. And then what everybody wants to know um, is the gender. And I would say about 80 percent of women uh, couples who come for their 20-week scan like to know the gender. And there are some hospitals that don't tell the gender, because um, so there are some places that there's cultural preferences to whether it's boy or girls. Uh, they don't tell whether it's uh, a boy or a girl. And then the other thing is, is that if a woman psychologically has been expecting a girl and a boy arrives, or the other way around, and the room is already painted pink and you would be surprised, some women have all their clothes bought before the baby ever arrives and it all has to go back.
1: If you have seen the images formed by an ultrasound scan, you can imagine how hard they might be to interpret. And it's clear that there is a limit to the sorts of problems you can spot with this scan. But there are several developmental disorders that we can identify.
2: Some babies are born where their skull hasn't developed um, or it's missing the top of its head. It's a condition called anencephaly. And we're quite good at seeing that. And we're quite good at seeing things like spina bifida, cleft lip. And then the things that we're are not so good at in the sense that we can see about two-thirds of problems at the heart. So babies that have major structure problems in their heart, like big holes in their heart, but we do miss very small holes in the baby's heart.
1: So as well as the obvious, limbs, general structure, etc., ultrasound can be used to identify a number of problems. But for some, an ultrasound is not just a health check for the foetus, but also a chance to take a first peek at their future baby. This has led to the availability of non-medical social scanning using a different type of scan, the three-dimensional scan.
2: There's a big vogue about 3D scanning and 2D scanning. So, it's 2D scanning is a black and white one, which is what we conventionally use. And that's where we look at the baby in slices. A 3D scan looks at volume. And if you look at these glossy 3D images, you see these lovely pictures of the baby. And this has become in vogue in recent years for Couples decide that they would like nice pictures of their baby and there's lots of commercial companies who you can attend for anything in the region of about £300 to go for a session where you have what's called social scanning and get some nice pictures of your baby's face, get a DVD and uh, you can uh, show all the family. It doesn't necessarily pick up abnormalities. We actually don't routinely use 3D scanning for the uh, diagnosis of fetal anomalies.
1: So 3D scanning may get you prettier pictures, but it isn't actually ideal for diagnosis. That was Quiva Lynch. The role of a pathologist is not limited to pregnancy. Liz Hook explains what happens after birth.
0: All babies who are born get a general assessment. They get examined by a neonatologist after birth. So the assessment varies in very simple things like measuring the baby's head circumference, weighing the baby, listening to the heart to check that there's a murmur, because as you've just learned, not all heart defects are detectable on the scan. They also check the hips to check for what used to be called clicky hips, but more correctly called uh, congenital hip dysplasia. And there are a whole host of other tests that are done. The babies get handled to check they're not too floppy, suggesting that they might have a problem with their muscles,
1: Newborns are also routinely screened for a number of disorders that may not be diagnosed until after they have done permanent damage, but that can be controlled well if caught early enough. Director of Newborn Screening at Addenbrookes, Dr Jackie Calvin.
3: Babies also get tested for a range of serious disorders using biochemistry. and Here in um, Addenbrookes, we screen all the babies that are born in East Anglia, so that's about 28,000 babies a year. The midwife goes to the the baby's home when they're about five days old and pricks the baby's heel and collects little drops of blood onto this special blotting paper on a blood spot card. And this is left to dry, and then they post it in to us. And we uh, extract compounds from the dried blood on the card and test for these five conditions. So the first um, condition ever to be screened for in this way was phenylketonuria, and this started in the late 60s. And this is a rare inherited disorder where you're missing an enzyme which is necessary to convert phenylalanine to tyrosine. And you get very, very high levels of phenylalanine which are toxic to the brain. And if the baby isn't treated, the child will have very, very severe learning difficulties, seizures and behavioural problems. Treatment is a very, very strict diet they're put on a low phenylalanine diet. And as phenylalanine is in all proteins, this means they're put on a very, very low protein diet. But they're also given amino acid supplements because obviously you need amino acids to grow properly. And for every week they're not treated, these babies are losing one to two IQ points. So the aim is to pick them up and treat them before they're three weeks old. And if you can do that, they grow up to be completely normal, healthy children. The next condition to be added to the screening panel was congenital hypothyroidism. Now, this isn't usually inherited. It's usually a sporadic problem where the thyroid gland hasn't developed properly. In the baby, the thyroid hormones are really very, very important for growth and for the brain to develop. And again, if you're not treated, the child will develop very severe learning difficulty, won't grow properly, and so on. Treatment's very simple and easy. The baby's given thyroid hormone called thyroxine from a very early age. And again, if treated early, the child should develop normally. We screen for sickle cell disorders. Liz has already mentioned sickle cell disorders. In this condition, you have anemia and jaundice, painful crises when these sickled cells block up small blood vessels You can get organ damage anywhere in the body. So, for example, a two-year-old could suffer from a stroke. And these children are very prone to infections. Now, treatment doesn't have to be quite as early as the other conditions, but the recommendation is these children are treated by the time they're three months old. And they're given antibiotics, they're vaccinated because they're at very high risk of getting infections and the parents are taught how to look out for danger signs or or the fact the child's having a crisis, and how to avoid trigger factors such as extremes of temperature or dehydration. We screen for cystic fibrosis, another inherited disorder. In this condition, the baby has repeated chest infections and digestive problems and doesn't grow properly. Now, there isn't a magic cure for cystic fibrosis, but there are an awful lot of treatments available and things that can be done to help that child grow properly so for example they are given digestive enzymes along with their food the parents are taught physiotherapy to try and get rid of all the nasty sticky secretions in the lungs and they're treated with antibiotics if there's any suspicion of chest infection Now, this one has been added to the the panel fairly recently. It's got a very long name, medium-chain acyl-CoA dehydrogenase deficiency, or MCAD for short. And this is a disorder where you can't break down fatty acids efficiently. And it's really quite different to the other disorders, because typically you've got a, a well child, but they may suffer from acute attacks if they just catch a minor childhood illness. So, For example, they get a really bad cold, or they get diarrhoea and vomiting. And then they're poorly, they're vomiting, they're not eating, and they need to start using fatty acids for energy and for fuel. And they can't do that if they're missing this enzyme. So they can't break down their fatty acids. They rapidly run out of glucose, and their blood glucose drops to very low levels. And they can collapse and die suddenly. Treatment is relatively easy. Uh, It's a case of making sure the children aren't fasted for very long periods and that the babies are fed regularly. And then you have to take particular care of them if they're unwell. So if they're unwell, they're given special sugary drinks to make sure their energy levels are kept up. And if they're not tolerating those and they're still vomiting, they're brought into hospital where they can be put on a drip and, and watched carefully. So with treatment, these children hopefully won't have an acute attack and won't be ill. So why do we screen? Well, the main reason is that these conditions benefit greatly from being treated very, very early, particularly phenylketonuria and congenital hypothyroidism. Also, you can't tell if a baby's got one of these conditions by just looking at them. So you can't look at a child and say, oh, well, I think that baby's got PKU, because by the time you can tell a child has got PKU, they've got brain damage so we screen because we can't tell by looking at them. And we also we screen because we've got very cheap, robust tests that work very well for screening.
1: Jackie Calvin explaining the benefits of newborn screening. In some situations, in addition to testing a newborn, pathologists are also required to run tests on the placenta. Liz Hook.
0: So sometimes when a baby's born, we get asked to examine the placenta after delivery. And the reason this is, is that not all babies are born healthy. Some babies are born very early. So 23 weeks is really what's called the lower limit of viability. So babies can be born and potentially survive from 23 weeks up to a term. And obviously a baby who's born at 23 weeks has lost 17 weeks of developing in a nice, safe, controlled environment. Its lungs won't have developed properly and it's got a lot of developing, a lot of catching up to do. And in these circumstances, if we can find information from the placenta, we may be able to tell the neonatologists who are caring for these babies on the neonatal intensive care unit important information. And we can learn all sorts of important things from the placenta. We can spot infection, and importantly, we can spot different types of infection. So these are the membranes that surround the baby, And if we see inflammation in those, that tends to be the group B streptococcus that I mentioned before, things that have come up through the vagina into the uterus. Whereas if we see inflammation in the middle of the placenta, that tends to be things like this diarrhea that have come from the mum's bloodstream into the placenta. And obviously if the placenta starts dying, then that's less placenta available to supply nutrients
1: to the baby. Liz Hook, on how testing the placenta can give us an insight into why a baby is born prematurely and help us to diagnose and treat any problems. Pathologists also help to understand diseases that can cause infertility or alter the course of a pregnancy. Chlamydia is one of these diseases, as Tim Reggett explains. First of all,
4: there are many different sorts of chlamydial infections. There are three main types of chlamydia. First of all, chlamydia citasi. And The word psittaci comes from cytosine birds, parrots, because this is parrot fever. This is a disease of parrots that can be transmitted to humans. It can be acquired from both birds and sheep and causes respiratory infection in URI called psittacosis. Chlamydia pneumoniae, the clue's in the name. It gives you pneumonia, It is spread from human to human, it is not spread from animals and it again gives you respiratory infection. This is far more common, particularly in people of your age group. And the last one, which is the one that's relevant to pregnancy and to neonates, is chlamydia trachomatis. This again is spread from human to human, it gives you genital tract and eye infections and it's important in babies. There are different sorts of chlamydia trachomatis. And I've shown you two of the pictures. I haven't shown you the third, and I'll explain why. Because lymphogranuloma venerium, the clues in the title, um, is where you get um, it's a sexually acquired disease, particularly in the Far East. And you get these rather large lumps in your groin, and it eats away your wobbly bits. And there's a very nice picture on the Internet of a man showing the symptoms. And I thought, well, not for this evening, I didn't think. Um, but types L1, L2, and L3 are associated with lymphogranuloma venerium. Trachoma, uh, types A, B, BA, and C is a leading cause of blindness in developing countries. And trachoma is a very interesting thing. The, the, the organism grows in the eye, it causes this follicular damage where all the cells puff up. And then the eyelids turn in. And as the eyelids turn in, the eyelashes scratch the cornea, the outside of the eyes. And as the eyelashes scratch the cornea, it causes damage, and then you get bacterial infections. And then you get uh, the other types, D to K, where you get eye and genital disease in adults, and this is where you get infant pneumonia and conjunctivitis. So sexually acquired chlamydia trachomatis infection in adults and women, the problem is that 75% of people with infection are asymptomatic, and yes, perfectly capable of them passing it on to somebody else. You all know how to prevent passing it on, I don't have to tell you. Um, you get a vaginal and cervical discharge, you get blocked fallopian tubes leading to infertility, and early rupture of membranes in pregnancy. There are, there are other um, symptoms you get as well, but those I think are the principal ones relevant to this evening. In men, 50% are asymptomatic, you get a penis discharge... And across the male and females, uh, about 18 to 24-year age group is where we have most infection, which is why you've got chlamydia screening programs now, where you can give a sample of urine and send it off and uh, anonymously tell whether or not you've been infected. And it's very easily treated, so it's just one pill antibiotic and and you can be treated. Uh, But because it's asymptomatic, it's important to know the screening program is helping to reduce... Uh, the amount of infection around. In very young babies, uh, when a mother has genital chlamydia trachomatis at the time she gives birth, there's a chance the infection may be passed on to the baby. And of course, she may be asymptomatic. If a baby is infected, then you most commonly get conjunctivitis about weeks three to six. And when you get that in a child, then a neonatologist or a paediatrician will think about chlamydia and take a scrape of the baby's eye and we'll look for chlamydia infection. A fewer babies, some of these may go on to develop pneumonitis or pneumonia at about 12 weeks of age. And again, in a a baby of about 12 weeks of age, when you get this sort of syndrome, people will be thinking it could be chlamydia. But they can be treated with antibiotics, such as erythromycin. Uh, There are some antibiotics like tetracycline you can't give to children. They cause damage. So there are certain antibiotics you can use and certain antibiotics you can't. So, what is the role of the microbiologists in all this? Well, we work in laboratories to diagnose infectious disease and then advise on the treatment and management of patients. We used to use cell culture, by which I mean taking particular sorts of cells, growing them on glass sheets, infecting them with the, the urine or the cervical fluid or the eye fluid or whatever, and then seeing if we can uh, see the uh, chlamydia growing. But these days we use molecular techniques. They're far more sensitive and they're used in all laboratories. So if you were to have a chlamydia test done, then uh, it would be a molecular test that you would now get.
1: Tim Reggett on testing for and the implications of a chlamydia infection. Finally, and sadly, not all pregnancies are successful and pathologists, again, play a role in understanding what can go wrong.
0: All the groups of pathologists who've spoken here this evening have a very important role to play in providing information to parents because obviously you would be very worried or concerned if you were in this unfortunate position that if you got pregnant again, would this happen to you again? And sometimes, unfortunately, there are conditions which would mean that this did. For example, the haematologists are very important to look for antibodies because we mentioned the rhesus disease, but there are a whole host of other antibodies against platelets, against red blood cells, which if you find them in a pregnant mum, it means she's potentially going to have problems every time she gets pregnant. Microbiologists are very important to look for various bacteria. So group B streptococcus, you may have heard about, it's... A common bacteria that you find in the genital tract, but occasionally it can leave the lower genital tract and move into the womb and infect the baby while it's still growing. And listeria, so all pregnant women are advised to not eat soft cheeses, um, the sort of Mr. Whippy ice cream, because these products can grow listeria, which can cross the placenta the other way from the mother's bloodstream. The virologists are important because viruses like cytomegalovirus, which doesn't cause the mother any problems at all. She wouldn't even know that she had the viral infection. She'd be perfectly well. But unfortunately, it can cross the placenta and cause quite severe damage to the developing foetus. And also uh, toxoplasmosis, which isn't a virus, but the virologists tend to to deal with it. And this is a a parasite that's found in undercooked steak or cat feces, so all pregnant women are told to wear rubber gloves when they change cat litter trays or get someone else to do it, and obviously make sure that all meat is well cooked. And histopathologists as well. So in very, very early pregnancy losses, sometimes the fertilisation step goes wrong, and instead of getting the egg and the sperm, you get two sperm forming the baby, and this is what we call a complete molar pregnancy where there's no foetus, but there's just a placenta. Finally, parents have the option of asking a histopathologist to perform a post-mortem on their baby. This is an entirely optional thing, and parents choose to say yes or no and gain information as they wish. And this is something that's very topical, because in fact it was in the BBC News today, that sadly, because there are so few paediatric pathologists... This is not a service that is universally available throughout the country to all couples who sadly lose a baby. And whether parents wish to have a post-mortem or not, I personally feel very strongly that they should have the option. Unfortunately, in some areas where they do have the option, the wait for the results is then very protracted because there's only a finite number of hours that the pathologist can work. So obviously it's a field where we're very keen to... Get information out there about to encourage medical students and doctors to think about going into
1: paediatric pathology. Liz Hook explaining just one of the reasons why we need more people training to become paediatric pathologists. That's it for this podcast from National Pathology Week. Please join us for the others in this series where we'll be invited behind closed doors at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital and we'll be investigating the world of veterinary pathology. You can find out more about National Pathology Week online at nationalpathologyweek.org, and you can visit the Royal College of Pathologists online at rcpath.org. I'm Ben Valsler from the naked scientists.com, and thank you for listening.